All humans are capable of making errors, but some errors have particularly more dangerous consequences than others. Like what if that mistake puts an innocent person in jail or maybe gets someone killed? On today's countdown, we're looking at the missteps and blunders made during the investigations of deadly crimes. Some of these oversights have allowed killers to continue their murder spree for years, or even on occasion go completely undetected. The latter is especially true for the diabolical killer at number one on today's list. Hey all you weirdos, welcome to Crime Countdown, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Ash. And I'm Elena. Every week we'll highlight 10 fascinating stories of history's most engaging and unsettling crimes, all picked by the Parcast Research Gods. This episode, we're counting down the top 10 murder investigation blunders. So I do a lot of older cases on our show, Morbid. Mm -hmm. That's like kind of my thing. (laughs) And those cases, one of the reasons I pick them is because those cases are always rife with bad investigatory work. Mainly because they literally never used to secure crime scenes, like not even a little bit. It's bonkers. They would literally like grab someone from the local pub and be like, will you stand outside the front door tonight and just make sure no one comes in? Like that was their idea of securing and a crime scene. that person would that. let millions of people in. Oh yeah, or they would just let the entire town walk through a crime scene, look at the dead bodies, take souvenirs if yeah, they wanted to. So creepy. It really makes you appreciate the good investigators though. Like when you really think of it, when you mm-hmm. find them in these cases, mm-hmm. the ones who go out of their way to get justice for the victims, the ones that secure crime scenes, the ones that make sure they take all that evidence. And sometimes the ones who spend years on the cases. Oh yeah, like dedicate their lives to it, dedicate their careers to it. They're there, I promise. They are. (laughs) Unfortunately, we will not be seeing any of those kinds of investigators on this list. Elena has five murder investigation blunders, and so do I, but neither of us knows what the others bring in with their list. Let's start the countdown. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. 10. (laughs) 
I'll start us off with number 10, Amanda Knox. Amanda Knox's story is well-known by now. While studying abroad in Italy in 2007, Knox and her then-boyfriend made international headlines when they were convicted of murdering and sexually assaulting Knox's British roommate, Meredith Kircher. Knox was convicted under Italian law, then acquitted, then convicted again. And then finally, in 2015, she was exonerated by the Italian Supreme Court. I remember this case... I'm wondering how much you remember, I, I was going to say, because I'm know. shaking my head right now. I don't remember a lot of this because I was maybe, uh, I think it was 11. Yeah. I re- see, I remember this case because I remember watching it on the news before school. When really? it was. I remember when it was like breaking. I remember seeing Amanda. Yeah. I remember the famous like photos of her, the famous, you know, videos that they were taking yep. of her and how they would spin this story to be you know, she's this like femme fatale and Mm -hmm. all that. It's wild to look back on now. I remember it being in the news and like having it on in kind of the sidelines because I just really wasn't paying attention back then. But I also remember how many freaking Lifetime movies they made about this. My mom was obsessed with Lifetime movies. So I I feel like that's where I got my information about this case. Well, and I can say like fully now, the way that they presented it to everybody, the media. Oh yeah. We all thought she was guilty. I 100% was one of those people that was like, that's horrible. I can't believe she did that. Oh my goodness. Of course, her behavior is so weird. Now I'm like, what are you thinking? You look back on it and you look at all the facts and you're like, oh no. Yeah. And the investigation was flawed from the beginning. Of course, we didn't know this right away, but it was flawed from the beginning. One of the alleged murder weapons was a kitchen knife found at Knox's boyfriend's house. Authorities transported the knife in a shoebox. What? Yeah. Like, that's how you move evidence, Uh, right? And a bra clasp that was thought to have DNA evidence on it was left on the floor for 46 days before it was secured and processed. Allowing how much DNA to get all over it? It's like, we're really just going to let that all degrade? Right. It's fine. The witness who claimed to see Knox and her boyfriend near the crime scene at the time of the murder gave inconsistent accounts. So already it's like, what's going on? What is happening here? A third person, Rudy Gaudet, was also convicted for the killing of Meredith Kircher. Gaudet knew the people who lived in the apartment below Kircher and Knox. His bloody fingerprints were found in Meredith Kircher's bedroom, and his DNA was found on her clothes and body. No biological evidence from Knox or her boyfriend was found at the house where Kircher was murdered. Which that would there, be right there, basically impossible if they had Hello. murdered her. In 2011, forensics experts reported that investigators made quote glaring errors at the crime scene. Oh uh, yeah. It was revealed that some of the authorities who entered the crime scene were not wearing protective equipment. It's like, are you new here? First of all, is this your first? Not day? only is that completely. Just completely messing up the crime, like compromising that crime scene. All but also gross. Yeah, that's also what are not you safe doing? for you, my you're friend. Gonna, yeah, you're just going to walk out of this crime scene? What? Yeah. Like, okay, you're going to go home and have dinner with your family? What's wrong with you? Yeah. Since her exoneration in 2015, Amanda Knox has been trying to clear her name. She says she feels like a marked woman. I don't blame her. I feel horrible for her. 
Rudy Gaudet spent 13 years in prison for the murder of Meredith Kircher. And the sad thing is, is you don't really hear his name associated with this it's case always very often. Her. And he's the one who served pr- like prison time for it. It's always Amanda. I feel terrible for her. I do too. I'm surprised that she wasn't able to kind of go into like the witness protection program or something. Yeah, I think she did. I honestly don't even think she wanted to. She seems no. like a strong lady and she, she just does. wanted to like, she's like, I should get my name back. I didn't do it. Yeah, it's true. And it's been very like well presented that I I didn't do it. This case is so nuts. Justice for Amanda. Nine. Number nine on our countdown is the Moore family axe murders. Just after midnight on June 10, 1912, in the small town of Villisca, Iowa, a man walked into the Moore's house and killed husband and wife Josiah and Sarah Moore, their four children, and two friends who were staying over that night. They were bludgeoned with an axe. On the morning of June 10th, a neighbor noticed that the Moore's house was eerily quiet, so they called Josiah Moore's brother. When the brother arrived to check on his family, he noticed two figures in the house were covered with a bedsheet, and then he noticed blood on a bedstead. Authorities arrived at about 8.30 a.m., went through the house, and that's when they found the rest of the bodies. The axe that was used as the murder weapon had been partially cleaned and was leaning against a wall in the downstairs bedroom. The killer left a slab of bacon wrapped in a towel on the floor of the downstairs bedroom. The murderer also placed cloths over all the mirrors in the house, as well as glass in the entry doors. All the victims were found with their heads covered with bedclothes. As soon as word spread about the murders, people gathered at the house and as many as 100 townspeople traipsed through the crime scene. It's reported that someone even took fragments of Josiah Moore's skull. Oh yeah, he showed it off later like, and put it in, he like owned a pub and like put it up as a, as like a trophy so, of some sort. So strange. Yeah. After a nearly 10-year investigation, only one suspect was ever put on trial, and he was tried twice. The first trial ended in a hung jury, and then he was acquitted at the second trial. There was no way they were going to be able to try anybody accurately with that. No, it was crazy. Um, This lady that I know, I think her name is Elena, did like a really good job covering (laughs) that case on Morbid if you want to hear more about it. Number eight on our countdown of the top 10 murder investigation blunders is the Ford Heights Four. On May 11, 1978, Lawrence Lyonberg and Carol Schmall were murdered in Ford Heights, Illinois. They had been shot in the head and Schmall had been raped several times. Four men were convicted of the killings. Two of them were sentenced to death, and the other two were sentenced to life in prison. But their trial wasn't exactly fair. The four men convicted of the murders were Dennis Williams, Verniel Jimerson, Willie Range, and Kenneth Adams. Their case was messed up from the start. One informant had shared a cell with Williams and Range shortly after their arrest. The informant said he heard the two talking about how they raped and killed a white woman and her boyfriend. But in October 1994, that cellmate recanted and said that he made up the story because he was offered a deal by authorities. Which happens a lot when people share cells together. Like, you can't go solely off of that. There was also another incidence of a witness being offered a deal for a false testimony. 
This is so shady. That's real messed up. The police were also accused of withholding crucial information regarding the case and ignoring strong leads, which is like, why? I know, I hate in these cases, sometimes like the investigators will just get tunnel vision when they think they know who did it. And you're like, you have to get other information and look at all the possible suspects here. Like you can't make the case fit the person who did it. The person who did it has to fit the case. Precisely. DNA evidence was incorrectly interpreted, including a blood test. The prosecution excluded black jurors from the 1978 trial, even though the defendants were all black men and the victims were white. This sounds, yeah, this sounds totally fair. Yeah. In 1996, a group of journalism students at Northwestern University took on the case of the Ford Heights Four. They found that a witness had tipped police to the identity of the killers, but the police never investigated the tip. That's unreal. This brutal crime occurs, and they're just like, nah, we're just going to go with these ones. You don't want real justice here? Thanks in part to the students, the killers were eventually found and confessed. In 1996, after spending 18 years in prison, the Ford Heights Four were exonerated. 18 years of their life gone. That's just like the West Memphis Three. I know, it made me think of that. Their entire lives are taken away. Mm -hmm. Three years later, they received $36 million from the county. At the time, it was the largest civil rights settlement in the state of Illinois. But, okay, like $36 million, that's incredible and amazing. But you don't get your life back. It does not make up for the 18 years lost. And your name. Exactly. Like we see with Amanda Knox. Your name is now tarnished. There's still people who are going to believe that you did this. Of course. Dennis Williams, who had been sentenced to death, said of the settlement, quote, If they could give me back the entire 18 years they took out of my life then that would be compensation. Exactly. And also, can we just point out, thank God he wasn't put to death before he was exonerated. Exactly. How many times has this happened? And how many times has it happened the other way? Yeah, where they are put an to death person and then is found. killed. Oh, so scary. Seven. At number seven this week is Andre Chikatilo, also known as the Forest Strip Killer. Over the span of 12 years, Andre Chikatilo murdered and mutilated 53 people in Rostov, Russia. How did he get away with it for so long? And why did someone else get sent down for some of those murders? The murder started in 1978 when Chikatilo was 42 years old. People in the town of Rostov weren't told there was a serial killer on the loose until years into the gruesome murder spree. Chikatilo would lure his victims into a wood where he would then torture and slaughter them. He was twice detained by police as a suspect for the murders. Once in 1978 after the first murder, and then again in 1984. When he was arrested in 1984, police found rope, wire, and a long knife in his briefcase. Which I'm sorry. What what do you need those things for? And how does one explain that away? Especially when you're being brought in for being a murder suspect and you're like... For the second time. Yeah, those things that like are blatant murder tools. Um, I'm not using them for murder I'm definitely purposes. not using them for that. Okay. Like, how do you explain that? And how does someone believe you? I have no idea. The evidence against him was strong, not just because of the contents of the briefcase, but because he had previously lost two teaching jobs for molesting children. He's a monster. Police ended up releasing him because the blood test did not match up. 
The LA Times wrote in 1992, quote, even given the laboratory discrepancies, it remains astonishing, almost incomprehensible, that Chikatilo remained at large for so long. He fit perfectly the portrait that police and psychiatrists eventually drew up. According to the New York Times, the Russian authorities wanted to put an end to the killings quickly and quietly, and they ended up executing the wrong man. There it is. We just talked about it. But not to discredit the Russian authorities too much. In their investigation, they at least managed to apprehend dozens of other murderers and rapists while searching for Chikatilo. So silver lining i guess which is horrifying that it's like while we were doing this like searching for this one person we managed to get a bunch of people that do horrible things it's like oh god dozens chikatilo was finally arrested in november of 1990 when he was seen near a killing in his testimony he described himself as a quote poisoned wolf sure and that he never planned to kill but that he was seized with shaking and would lose control as a poisoned wolf does. You're like, yeah, so that makes sense. Both of those things sure. connect, for yeah, sure. That excuses you killing multiple people. Okay, Andre. Ugh. Six. Landing at number six is the case of serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer murdered 17 men and boys from 1978 to 1991. His murders involved cannibalism and necrophilia, and he was also known to preserve body parts of his victims. Close to the end of his killing spree, the police mistakenly handed over a 14-year-old boy to Dahmer, which ended tragically. This makes me so angry. I can never get over this. No, never. On May 27, 1991, Sandra Smith and Nicole Childress called the Milwaukee police after spotting a naked boy in an alley who looked like he needed help. When the police arrived, they found Jeffrey Dahmer in the alley with the naked boy, a 14-year-old Laotian immigrant. The police took Dahmer and the boy back to Dahmer's apartment, where he convinced the police that the boy was his drunk boyfriend. Which, by the way, Dahmer is a grown adult, and this is like a, a 14-year-old. The police soon left and listed the incident as a domestic dispute. And, like, joked about it on their yeah. radios together. One witness called the police six times, saying that they had made a mistake. Within hours of the police leaving, Dahmer had killed the boy. So violently. One of the officers later said of Dahmer that he was, quote, polite and gave us no reason to suspect him of anything at all. That's literally, like, what murderers do, though. And also it's, like, except of, like, abducting a child. Right. That, he seemed like, you know, like he, you could suspect him of that since he's a grown, grown adult. Yeah, he had this child with him, but he was very polite. Yeah, and he said they were, like, he said they were lovers. It's fine. Unreal. Makes sense. Unreal. Two months later, 11 dismembered bodies were found in Dahmer's apartment. The police said at a hearing that they had failed to investigate properly. Two of the officers were fired in 1991, but were later reinstated in 1994. Like, what What did they do to get themselves reinstated? Makes a lot of sense. You should have been fired for good and never held a job in law ever again. Yeah, a child lost their life to a serial killer because of you. You have blood on your Not hands. only that, tons of other people lost their lives right after that from the same guy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That 
that last one, it makes me like furious every Dahmer, single time. Yeah, Dahmer always is the one that I think of when I think of like botched police work because and some like, of the worst. Because like you said, multiple people lost their lives yeah. after that. Like it all could have been stopped right then. Yeah, it's horrible. Hi, I'm Christine Schiefer. And I'm M. Schultz. We're the hosts of Rituals, the new Spotify original from Parcast. If you've heard our podcast and that's what we drink, you know we are no strangers to true crime and the paranormal. We're also into the occult uh, to chat about, not to join, but, you know, to, to learn and educate. <laughs> Every Monday on Rituals, we're journeying through mystifying stories of sorcery, alchemy, Satanism and more and trying to determine if the dark arts of the past impact us today. Like weather witches, who were they? Or the Fountain of Youth? Address, please. <laughs> Don't forget about werewolf trials, Em. Objection, Christine. Let's not give too much away. And instead, let's tell everyone to follow our new podcast, Rituals, free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Five. All right, let's jump back in with number five on our countdown of murder investigation blunders. Starting off the second half of our list is Casey Anthony. The 2008 murder of two-year-old Kaylee Anthony rocked the country, and to this day, no one has been found guilty of her death. But Kaylee's mother, Casey, did some questionable things in the aftermath of her daughter's disappearance that made her suspect number one. And still does. I was just going to say that. Kaylee Anthony was last seen on June 16th, 2008, but she wasn't reported missing until July 15th, 2008. Casey Anthony's parents, Cindy and George, reported Kaylee missing after picking up Casey's car, which had been impounded. When they opened the doors to the car, they said it smelled like a decomposing body. Casey's mom said to the 911 dispatcher, quote, there is something wrong. I found my daughter's car today and it smells like there's been a dead body in the damn car. That's very specific. And yup. It has to smell very bad for your own parents to say that. And then later, didn't they say like, it smelled like bad pizza or something? It was like old pizza, like I'm garbage. Like, those are two very different smells. Yeah. yeah, let me tell you, it is. Casey Anthony's internet history showed that she had researched chloroform, foolproof suffocation, and neck breaking. Kaylee Anthony died by suffocation and poisoning. Come on. Hello. Why are you also Googling those things? a two-year-old. Two years old. And this Died is by her. suffocation and poisoning. And that's what her mother was Googling. Yeah. This evidence was not presented at the trial because the Orange County Sheriff's Office, which held the evidence, failed to coordinate with the prosecution. 
This makes me so angry, this case. Not only did they fail to coordinate with the prosecution, they failed a two-year-old. Yeah. While police were looking for Kaylee, Casey was seen out partying with her friends, and she made it known by posting photos on social media. Which no matter what, no matter what anybody says, your two-year-old is missing, there is not one person on planet Earth that normally would go out partying with their friends. No. That's just not. No. This isn't like a no, people grieve in different ways. Your, your two-year-old is missing. That's not grieving. You should spend every second you have searching for that baby. I would be catatonic. Kaylee's remains were found in a wooded area in December 2008, an area that a local utility worker had suggested police search back in the summer of that year. They really killed it. They did. They did great on this. In July 2011, Casey Anthony was found not guilty of killing her daughter. Even saying that sentence is, like, unfathomable. I remember hearing this verdict when it was read, and I, I just too. remember my jaw hitting the ground. I think collectively the nation's jaw hit the ground and there has mi- never been scooped back there up. There might have been an earthquake that day because all of our jaws hit the ground at once. Legit. But she was found guilty of providing false information to law enforcement officers. In 2021, one of the members of the jury reflected on his decision to acquit Casey Anthony. He said, quote, I think now if I were to do it over again, I'd push harder to convict her of one of the lesser charges, like aggravated manslaughter. And then he went on to say, quote, this case will stick with me for the rest of my life. Yeah. As it should. It will stick with all of us. Four. Landing at number four this week is Michael Joseph Swango. Michael Swango was a former Marine turned doctor who pleaded guilty to killing four people, but that figure might actually be closer to 60. Whoa, pretty big discrepancy. From 1985 until 1987, Michael Swango was imprisoned for tainting his co-worker's food with ant poison. He had been working as an emergency medical technician in Illinois. When the police searched his apartment, they found ant poison, books on Satanism, guns, survival knives, and recipe cards for pesticides, botulism, and cyanide mixtures. What your everyday search uh, turns up. Just apartment things. Yeah, just decor. But even before that incident, he had been under suspicion for the death of some of his patients. When he was studying medicine in Illinois in 1982, his peers gave him the nickname Double O Swango, a reference to James Bond, after some patients died on his watch. Which I'm also like, that's not funny. Cool nickname, guys. Right. Fun times. Like, let's joke about our patients' deaths. After Illinois, he worked as an intern at Ohio State University Hospitals, where it's thought he poisoned patients. The school did an internal probe of Swango, but couldn't find any conclusive evidence against him. Despite the allegations against him, several doctors at the school wrote him letters of recommendation for his medical license application. Guys, literally patients died under his watch. Like, think twice about that What are you doing? He did seek work in other states, but was rejected after it was found that he had forged documents and lied about his criminal past. Yeah, usually that'll get you rejected. But in 1993, he did find another residency, this time in psychiatry in New York State patients under his care soon started dying. And when the university was tipped off about him, they fired Swango and he was blacklisted. A former dean of the school later said, quote, standard procedures for checking applicants were not followed. Before police could conduct a full investigation, Swango took off to Zimbabwe, where he killed more patients. 
He eventually came back to the U.S., and that's when the FBI caught up with him. In 2000, Swango was charged with three counts of murder. Later that year, he pleaded guilty to all three counts and was sentenced to three consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. How sad is it, though, for the other victims that he killed and their families that he wasn't convicted of their murders? Absolutely. And it's like, how hard is it to become a doctor? It's crazy hard. Yeah. And this guy managed to just, like, do that while also killing patients? Like, come on. You're you're being selective about who is a doctor here. Maybe very scary. We can get rid of this guy. We don't need him. For real. Three. Number three on our countdown of murder investigation blunders is the killing of JonBenet Ramsey. Six-year-old JonBenet Ramsey was reported missing on December 26, 1996. Her father discovered her body a few hours later in the basement of their house. Major mistakes were made at the crime scene, and these missteps are most likely why, to this day, no one has ever been arrested for the death of JonBenet. Horrific. In 2015, the Boulder police chief, who was in charge of the Ramsey investigation, revealed on Reddit some of his investigation regrets. The former police chief said the crime scene wasn't secured fast enough because it was Christmas and the police were short-staffed. Friends of the Ramseys also showed up at the house to offer moral support, therefore contaminating the crime scene. They helped JonBenet's mom wipe down the kitchen and tidy up the home with several people walking through the house. Which also, it's like, why were you wiping down the kitchen? Yeah, it's like really weird to wipe things down. Don't do that. Your house is a crime scene. Like, come on. Fingerprint evidence was also lost and items untracked. The police chief also said that he wished the police had separated and collected statements from the parents right away instead of letting them go and interviewing them after they had their lawyers. On top of all of this, a long ransom note was found at the home, but it was believed to have been written after the murder, meaning there was never an intent to kidnap JonBenet. This led the police chief to believe that it was always a murder stage to look like a kidnapping gone wrong. Yeah. JonBenet's mom died of ovarian cancer in 2006. As of this recording, the investigation into JonBenet Ramsey's murder is still open. Which is horrible. Seriously. I mean, at least it's still open, so they're like still looking. But it's like, it's been way too long. JonBenet Ramsey always just... It'll get that's the one case whenever anybody because we get the question a lot. If you could have one case solved, which would it be? Mine always, always JonBenet Ramsey. Even though I do feel like it's kind of solved. I feel like I know what happened, but I need it confirmed. Yeah, same. That's what I need. I just need the I need her to have justice here. It it feels like every year, like around Christmas time, they start to talk about it again Mm -hmm. and you start to feel like you're close. Yeah. But then nothing comes up. But then it's just come on, man. But Michael Swango? Dude. What? I was like, that is way too... That happened like yesterday. That was so I know. Soon. I'm like, what is going on here? And just the amount of missteps that were taken in that case alone. Oh, yeah. I know. I feel like we're only going to get more infuriated. We sure are. This next one, you're going to be like, ah, I shake my fist at you. My number one, you're going to do the same thing. Oh, man. Two. 
We're down to the final two spots on our countdown of murder investigation blunders. And number two is the Manson family and the Tate murders. Yup. The Manson family killings in the summer of 69 have been well documented in books, movies, and TV. And podcasts. Yep. But even with all of this exposure, the missteps taken by the L.A. Police Department in the aftermath of the killings are not as well known. When the police arrived at the Tate-Polanski house on Cielo Drive on August 8th, 1969, they found a gruesome scene. To say the least. Really. Five people had been stabbed, including a nearly nine months pregnant Sharon Tate. The word pig had also been written in blood on one of the walls. One of the first officers on the scene was Jerry Joe DeRosa. He noticed blood on a button that opened the gate to the house. Instead of leaving it for forensics, he pressed the button, therefore messing up a crucial bit of evidence. Like, sir, what compelled you to do that? Why? Within a few hours, the crime scene was swarming with more police and media, making the area even more contaminated. Several officers tracked the victim's blood through the house, which obscured the killer's footprints. Like, don't you learn that on day one of becoming a police officer? Why are you not wearing booties? Come on. What are you doing? Come it's, on. This is another situation where it's like, gross. You're just walking into a crime scene with no protective equipment? and you're You guys are gross. And you're stepping in the victim's blood. Like, come on, man. Only a few days before the Tate murders, a musician named Gary Hinman was murdered by the Manson family. They wrote political piggy on one of his walls. The LAPD ignored the connection to the Manson killings. That was one of the biggest things in this case, that it's like, how did you... Like, how? It literally says one of the same words and in blood like, on this wall. That's a very specific thing to do very, at a crime scene. Very specific. And I'm assuming probably the same person wrote it, so it probably. had to have been similar fingerprint writing. Yeah. 48 hours after the Tate murders, Leno and Rosemary LaBianca were murdered at 3301 Waverly Drive. The words Helter Skelter were written in blood on their fridge. Helter Skelter being a reference to the name Manson gave his race war. But again, the LAPD refused to see any similarities between the cases. After the LaBianca murders, an inspector told reporters, quote, I don't see any connection between this murder and the others. They're too widely removed. Are you blind? Are you okay, sir? Widely removed? Are you okay, Inspector? All three of these cases, like, the writing is actually on the walls. Lit actually. Physically. If there is something written on the walls in the victim's blood at three different crime scenes in the same general vicinity... Yeah. You gotta at least look into it, my dude. Like, sir, one plus one plus one is three. Inspector 101, just at least give it a second. A second look. I don't see any connection. No. Okay, you okay. should get your eyes checked. I was just gonna say, put on your readers then, because you're missing something. Their main reason for not seeing a connection is because the police found a bunch of drugs at the Cielo Drive house and put it all down to a drug deal gone wrong. Case closed, am I right? I cannot. In the first two months of the investigation, the sheriff's department and detectives failed to communicate with each other, even though they shared an office. Literally in the same office. They are not okay. Guys. It took the police several months to catch up with the Manson family. Could have gotten them a lot sooner if only law enforcement had actually communicated with each other and had actually taken a look at these crime scenes 
and secured them. It happens so often that these offices don't want to communicate with each other because they want to be ego. the one to solve it. It's all about ego. And it's, you know what, the cases where they all work together and they all bring their evidence to Share each other are the ones that get solved and they're the ones that become the heroes here. Yep. Not the ones that can't check their egos. Exactly. One. And that brings us to number one on our countdown of the top 10 murder investigation blunders. Jack the Ripper. There he is. I knew you were waiting. I was waiting. As we've talked about before on this podcast, to this day, the identity of Jack the Ripper is still not known. But what we do know is that between August and November of 1888, he killed at least five, possibly six women in London. Jack the Ripper killed Marianne Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Kelly. All women, assumed to be sex workers, were brutally murdered. Their throats were slashed and they had stab wounds all over their bodies. Three of them even had some of their organs removed. There's been much speculation as to who the Ripper was, but some think he was a doctor or butcher. It's thought that after the November 1888 killing, the Ripper never killed again. It's also thought that the graffiti at the site of the Catherine Eddowes murder was left by the killer. But instead of having it examined, the crime scene commissioner had it wiped clean. Seems like a, a good idea. Just wipe that off. Yeah. Just here's a Clorox wipe. That that might be evidence. We should clean it up. One might say. That's dirty. While the body of Marianne Nichols lay in the morgue waiting to be examined, her clothes were removed and her body wiped clean of all the blood before it was examined. A very typical procedure. I'm sorry. For sure. What? We, you definitely wipe away all the evidence first. Why would you ever do that? That's not like your job. The crime scenes were mostly left unsecured, which meant that the police and onlookers trampled over evidence and potential clues. In the last week of September 1888, a London news agency published what they thought was a letter sent and signed by the Ripper. In it, the writer talked about the atrocities of the murders and he mocked the police. After the publication of the letter, a bunch of hoaxers sent in their own letters and it gave the police a lot of extra work and took their focus away from the real case. It started way back then. I know, it's like trolls. internet trolls. Yeah. The police also quickly suspected gangs of the murders, and they pushed this narrative because the concept of a serial killer just didn't exist in 1888. Which is wild. I know, because there clearly was one. Oh yeah. There was a lot of mistrust between the police and the press at this time, so the police didn't use the press for help in getting tips from the community, which I honestly think would have been vital in this oh, investigation. Oh yeah, it was a big misstep. Right? Now, in 2019, a study published in the Journal of Forensic Sciences claimed to have uncovered the identity of Jack the Ripper. They said he was a man named Aaron Kaminsky, a 23-year-old barber of Polish descent. The study's authors found DNA on a shawl belonging to Catherine Eddowes. They said it was a close match of one of Kaminsky's living relatives. But some people have taken issue with this theory, saying that they can't prove that the shawl was present at the scene of the crime. But investigators' notes from the 1880s do mention one Aaron Kaminsky. So, unfortunately, we're never going to know the Ripper's identity. I feel like we still can. You think so? You still have hope? I have hope still. All right. One. You never know. I mean, the fact that, like, DNA did maybe match one of his living relatives it's is... interesting. Familial DNA. Hello. Look at it. You know what I'm saying? It's wild. Ask Paul Holes. Number two. 
Uh, you know what? I would say Jack the Ripper. For I mean, he's it's definitely the one that everybody knows for yeah. sure. It's definitely huge missteps made, obviously, because we still don't know who he is. I know. But my number one is JonBenet Ramsey. I agree. I yep. think that that crime scene to me, there was a lot of things that could have been done that would have better eliminated suspects at the very least. I'm not saying it would have pointed the finger at anyone in particular, but we could have gotten rid of some, which would have helped. Yeah, definitely. But I mean, we could probably come up with about a hundred more. Oh yeah, just off of our case catalog. So maybe we should do another one of these because there's definitely some more. I agree. I think that would be interesting. But, but this sure. was a great beginning. No, it really was. Well, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another great episode. Remember to follow Crime Countdown on Spotify to get a brand new episode delivered every week. You can find all episodes of Crime Countdown and all other podcast shows for free on Spotify. And if you like this show, follow at Parcast on Facebook and Instagram and at Parcast Network on Twitter. And if you like us, which we hope that you do because you made it this far, you can listen to our show Morbid wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can also follow us on Instagram at Morbid Podcast or on Twitter at A Morbid Podcast. Crime Countdown is executive produced by Max Cutler and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It was created by Max Cutler. Sound design by Kristen Acevedo with associate sound design by Jamie Ryan. Research by Jay Cahio. Fact-checking by Cara Mackerlein. It's produced by John Cohen, Kristen Acevedo, and Jonathan Ratliff with production assistance by Ron Shapiro. We're your hosts, Ash Kelly and Elena Urquhart. Werewolves, witches, and Arthur Conan Doyle? Oh my! Sounds like fascinating topics to discuss on our new show, Rituals, Christine. You know what, Em? It sure does. Every Monday on Rituals, join us as we explore the evolution of spiritualism and the occult through stories, practices, and the impact on modern culture. If you've heard our podcast and that's why we drink, this is the perfect pairing for you. And if you haven't, go give us a try. Follow our Spotify original from Parcast, Rituals. Listen free only on Spotify. Spotify.